I try to change it up every time, man. Uh, but I am excited. I'm always excited. Yeah. This is this yeah. is fun, man. Yeah, we have a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful guest today, which we'll oh, talk man. about shortly. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. It's gonna be sobering, and it's going to be painful. Sobering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Hey, you know, I've been uh, actually cutting. I cut back my wine intake. It's been a big deal for me. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I you know I was drinking about a bottle a night there for a while. I thought, yeah, I'm gonna try to dial it back. And you know what? Yeah. One night a week, and I really do. You feel do you feel clearer? Clear actually, yeah, I do. I do. I feel better. I feel you know all around better. Wow. So, uh, well, congratulations. Yeah. I just passed eight years of no alcohol, and and really. I quit because I was doing the same thing, but also I had a show where I had to do five voices at once, plus my own, for 20 minutes. You saw that show, I Teddy, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. a great show. So I had to actually do all these voices, and I and I realized I need the clearest head possible to perform this feat that no other ventriloquist in the history of performing has ever accomplished. That really is truly amazing. I've seen you live, and, you know, there's not only the five voices that you have to do, there's those voices in your head, Dave. <laughs> well, those are the ones that you have to deal with uh, when we're not uh, on this podcast. Hey, you know, the podcast has been going along great, and we are building our listenership slowly and surely, and we're getting emails. And there was somebody who emailed in and said, you know, in the first episode, we were talking about great fossil moments, and I went on and on about my uh, Nanooksaurus tooth, you know, on the banks right. of the Colville River. Right. And we talked about fossils and stuff. You talked about the La Brea bird incident that kind of warped your mind. That was a robin sinking in the La Brea tar oh, pits. Oh, man, very yeah. sad. But, but you're a fossil... We We've gone on a few fossil hunts, and I know you've yeah. been fossil hunting. Is is uh, listener want to know? Is there a fossil moment for you, David Strassman? Yeah, for you. Um, yeah, I I think two come to mind. One of them is with you, Ray, seeing three D coral on that island in southeast oh, Alaska. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? If you look up our Facebook, there is a video of you explaining this oh. three dimensional Devonian coral and. Uh, it is the most amazing representation of a coral reef that's how how many three hundred and forty million years old something like that. Uh, what are we? I at? mean, it's uh, three seventy five. Yeah, give or take a few million yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so seeing that coral when you look down and you see the actual polyps and the branching, it's as though it's frozen in time. That that was mind blowing. But I think my son and I read in a book that there were the only dinosaur trackways in California are way in the uh, eastern part of the state, mm -hmm. uh, near uh, the Nevada border, in the Providence Mountains. And I had been camping throughout there. That's near the Kelso Dunes, the largest dunes in North America. The Singing Dunes, you heard about those? They sing? What? Yeah. Oh, listen to this. There are four or five dunes around the world that when you climb them and then jump down them, they go, Oh, no. Yes. And it sounds like planes flying over. It's the size and their shape, spheroid. Um, they create this hum. And I have video and audio of it, which I'll put on this episode. It's, yeah, it's absolutely believe, insane. That, that, that sounds like a voice in your head sort of thing. All no, no, no. That's Kelso Dunes. And it is the most amazing wow. uh, natural phenomenon. 
So Carson, my son and I, we, you know, we had the approximate coordinates for these theropod trackways in California. We went up these four-wheel drive tracks and we did this trek up this dry desert jumble of rocks. And there was a little bit of this sandstone that's in Arizona has crossed into the California, uh, the border there. Yeah. And I, I almost want to say it's Cococino sandstone. Coco. Um, I don't know. That's you, dude. Yeah. It's pronounced Coconino, Dave. Coconino sandstone. And that's not what the tracks are in. And why am I talking to myself? The tracks we found are in early Jurassic Aztec sandstone and are the only dinosaur tracks found in California. We found those theropod trackways. Wow. And I think the, the discovery of it, like, oh my God, we found it. That was like half the awesomeness right, about the it. hunt is fun yeah the hunt is fun but looking at a piece of mud that a living dinosaur made his mark in and imagining the sounds and the squishiness yeah you know i, I think i've been to a few dinosaur trackways and uh it's mind-blowing and that really is more or less like time travel because there you are in this environment that you can kind of even put your foot in the well, footprints yeah, I mean, of the dinosaur and Thursday then imagine. At two o'clock in the afternoon right you know right or or that maybe it was a monday but you know how crazy is that so that's kind of like my two fossil moments besides the bird at la brea that's cool that's cool man yeah there's uh some, some photographs of some fossil uh footprint sites in denali that i'm just dying to go see oh, really these vast hillsides really are you serious covered. up in denali national park in yeah, alaska yeah yeah but you gotta hike wow. way into them and stuff so and of course in the summer when there's no snow that's right did you know that i spent a week in denali in midwinter really yeah, yeah, I was in Denali Park. You were in... My sister was studying moose. What? She lived in a little trailer right there where the road on the way to Fairbanks. She lived with her, her then, um, her husband, I think at the time. She was studying moose and we would snowshoe out and find the moose because one of them had a tracking collar with a little radio antenna. Beep, beep, beep. We'd find out where the moose were. There he is. We'd drive out to the road, and then we'd hike into where they were, and we'd sit and just observe the moose. Uh, specimen number two is standing for 25 minutes. Oh, he just sat down. He's laid and he's bedded in the alder for two hours. Wow, so your sister is a scientist? She's a biologist? My sister is now a retired Forest Service, but she at the time took a job wintering in Denali National Park. Wow, I didn't and know studying this. moose, yeah, yeah. Huh. So I went and visited her. Yeah, I had um, taken the Alaska Railroad from Anchorage to Fairbanks. I'm not too sure if I did it for a. I think I did it for a gig, but I remember stopping in Denali and then doing a whitewater rafting down the Nanana River. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and by the way, Denali is uh, the name of the largest mountain in North America. It used to be called Mount McKinley, That's and. Right. Uh, that uh, white privilege name has been removed for many, many years now, and it is now the uh, local um, indigenous name, Denali, Mount Denali, and the, and the park is called Denali National Park. Okay, let's go wild here. Um, before we interview our guest, he's going to talk about something. I know you're going to ask him a question about Cope and Marsh, oh, and yeah. about specifically about, first of all, real quickly, we kind of know who Othniel Marsh is and Edward Drinker Cope is. 
They were two paleontologists who were famous back in the late 18... What was it? 1880s? 1870s. It starts in the 1870s, yeah. The news that there were dinosaur bones and giant ones all over the west of America. They mounted these expeditions to go dig, 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 and just accumulate tons and tons and tons of bones. And these guys had a kind of a fight. Who can get the biggest T-Rex head? Who can get the biggest sauropod foot? And it became known as the Bone name, Wars. Name the most, oh, yeah. All right, name the most. And it became known as the Bone Wars. So tell the story about Cope's skull. And is that what we're going to be asking our next guest? Yeah, our next guest actually was able to meet Edward Drinker Cope, even though he's been dead, low these, uh, well, since... Uh, when did Cope die? Probably 1900-ish. Uh, anyways, uh, he there's a story about what happened to Cope's body afterwards, and he willed his body to science for various reasons, but maybe part of it was this rivalry with Marsh. You know, they started out as friends, and then they were just lifelong enemies, man. Right. And at the very end, uh, Cope willed his body to science, and uh, it ended up in a uh, museum in Philadelphia. And for a while, you could actually go actually borrow the specimen, Mr. Cope. And what, I believe, the whole skeleton or just the skull? Uh, you could check out the whole skeleton. Turns out that Kirk Johnson... But wait, that was his, that was his death wish. I believe so, yes. He yeah. perhaps wanted to be right. the type specimen for all of humanity. So goes the rumor. Oh. And here we are, rumor mongering. So you go to the library and go, Hi, can I get All About Horses by James McCullough? Can I please get Great Expectations by Charles Dickens? And can I also grab that skull over there? When is it due? Next Wednesday? Yeah, yeah it's something <laughs> like that. Uh, so, But, you know, now the, the tale can be told. So we're going to ask our guest about this. Right, okay, great. And and our guest is, shall we reveal their identity? Okay, sure. But why do you always act like it's some sort of secret? I don't know. <laughs> I guess it, it clearly labels on the episode okay, you know what, what? who you it know is. What? No, no. Let's not say who our guest is and talk to them for the entire interview and never mention their name. <laughs> no, let's not do that. Let's. Luis Ahoyos is who we're going to be talking to, National Geographic photographer. Well, I'm going to tell you who he is here in a minute, but... In the introduction, right? In the introduction. But Louis. But he a... is the Academy Award winning director of the movie The Cove about the yes. Japanese slaughter, the yearly slaughter of dolphins. And uh, they used, uh, oh my God, robotics and secret cameras. And it was almost like a James Bond meets eco-terrorists. Right, right. And they went in and they secretly filmed all this stuff and it won an Academy Award. And it also gave rise to the film Blackfish about the yes. abuse of orcas in, in amusement parks and SeaWorld around the world. And then one of his most powerful films is Racing Extinction, which came out a few years ago and came out in uh, the year 2015. And it's uh, that's a powerful film. And uh, anyways, I think that Louis came to uh, paleontology and dinosaurs sort of late in, later in life. I don't know. Well, let's ask him. We're going to ask him if he's a paleo nerd, right. but I wanted to share one thing. Sure. Well, Louis actually, in his book, Hunting Dinosaurs, which came out in 1994, and I have a copy of, and... Uh, it was originally a National Geographic article, it, right? It was a National Geographic assignment to uh, put uh, dinosaurs in the cover, and Louis was assigned this and went around the world photographing paleontologists and dinosaur bones. But Louis got into deep time, and I, apparently he's into rock and roll as well. And so you've heard these analogies where if you break down the history of life and you do it on a, a yearly calendar, 
You know, right. like Life Begins. And Cosmos did that with Carl yeah. Sagan. Yeah, and I want to read you what Louis came up with in his book. On January 1, the Earth Begins. Right. Springtime, March 20th. The Wait birthday. a minute, is it hungover from the Big Bang? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so it's springtime. On March 20th, it's the birthday of DNA, which is right. kind of cool. Three months in. Thanksgiving is when sea creatures begin pioneering the land. So right. Thanksgiving. December 11th, 90% of all life goes extinct. That's the Permian extinction. Oh, wow. On December 13th, dinosaurs enter. It's not until December. Right. The right. dinosaurs enter on the 13th. The day after Christmas, dinosaurs go extinct. And then on December 31st, on the evening of December 31st, man-like creatures appear. And then almost toward midnight, uh, 11.59 and 45 seconds, the Roman Empire rises and falls. And wow. 3. 3. 3.5 seconds to midnight, Columbus supposedly discovers America, but there were already native peoples here, of course. And then one twentieth of a second to midnight, the Beatles play the Ed Sullivan Show. One twentieth of a second to midnight. I want to hold your hand. Yeah. And that's wow. been a, that's been a while. Wow. So, anyways, that's that's Louis getting into deep time. Yeah. So we'll yeah. ask him all this stuff and sure. well, see let's where do it goes, it. man. All right. Well, I'm going to um, call him up. Yeah. Let's uh, let's call the man. Hey Dave, meet Louis Sahoyos, photographer and Academy Award-winning documentary film director, scuba diver, executive director of the Oceanic Preservation Society, environmental activist, and a warrior against extinction. Louis, thanks for joining us, man. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. So, Louis, are you a paleo nerd? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no. It's are a, you? Yeah, Were yeah. you born a paleo nerd? Uh, I mean, I think like most, you know, most people on this podcast, yeah, I got interested in pretty early on with, um, you know, back in, you know, doing like army soldiers back when I was a kid, I was doing dinosaurs, sometimes adding them in, but <laughs> I had both. Yeah, I had both. I had plastic dinosaurs and plastic. Yeah, they were, they were often dueling. This is in Dubuque, Iowa, when you were a youth, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I spent my high school years uh, about 100 miles up the Mississippi River from you in La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin. So mm. I was kind of in the same neighborhood. But uh, so you were you were you were into uh, uh, dinosaurs early on. You knew your uh, your Stegosaurus and your Triceratops and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, obviously, um, well, not obviously to the listeners, but you know, it was really in sort of midlife that I got you know rejuvenated again. I was working for National Geographic at that point. And um, I was a still photographer, but I was l working out of New York City and filming a lot of celebrities. And, you know, they have, you know, handlers and PR people and you have limited time. And Geographic was trying to woo me back to work with them again and, on the story about dinosaurs. And, oh, old dead things. And they said, oh, you, you had left <laughs> National Geographic. They were luring you back. Yeah, yeah you? I was. I started out um, well, technically as a, I was staff when I was started as a as a uh, an intern back in 1980. Then I went on to contract, and I was the first contract photographer that they hired in over 11 years. This is back in 1980, and then um, about 1991, and I'd left there several times, three times actually, where I just was kind of tired of. Um, I mean, it sounds like a glorious job, and it was. I really, you know had a wonderful time working for them, but it was really tough on family life. When I, when I started there, I was a kid, right? I was in my early twenties and everybody right, else was right. there. It was, you know, I'd say middle age. 
and none of them, there's 45 photographers that were doing freelance contract and staff work, and none of them, not one of them, was on their first marriage. And <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I love family. I love, you know, having a significant other. And it was real. It's, it's obviously very, very tough on relationships. And it was, but it was yeah. such a great lure. It was the best job in the world, bar none, I thought, until I discovered, you know, documentary filmmaking. But the, the toll it takes on personal life is pretty severe. So didn't the movie Walter Mitty with Ben Stiller kind of take a strange bent on that whole world? I remember it vaguely. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, exactly. I, re yeah, I remember that now. Uh, but it, but there's a lot of truth in that. And the, and the lure is that you have this, you know, w what feels like as a photographer, the best job in the world, you know, back when I started, there were no budgets. We didn't, they didn't say, oh, you have, you know, X amount of money to do this project. They just said, go do it, spend whatever you need to get it done and tell us when you, you know, when you're done. And we'd spend like a year, year and a half for an assignment back in those days. And I remember the first story I did for them was actually in Wyoming. And I was uh, just out of college and I was hemorrhaging money. I'd never stayed in hotels for weeks at a time and renting cars and assistants. And I would always underestimate the amount of cash that I needed. And every week I would write, you know, write them and say, can you wire some more money? And when I got back, the head accountant said, you know, son, our problem is not how to, uh, you know, make money. Ours is how to get rid of it. We're a nonprofit business wow. with magnolia wow. trees in the parking lot. I've got to say, I've got your book, Hunting Dinosaurs. I absolutely love this book. Came out in 1994. He won't he... stop talking about it. <laughs> I won't stop talking about it. It's it's such a phenomenal book. And I look at that book, and uh, I'm, I'm just amazed the number of places you went on the planet, just everywhere. And I was thinking, my, and I don't see the word National Geographic anywhere, really, in the book, but it started out as an assignment for them, and then you turned it into a book. Right. Yeah. Something. It's a funny story, actually. Uh, you know, I guess was, we have to we have time to set this up. I thought this this was a, a marvelous turn of events. So I, we we had just done an, an epic coverage, uh, spent a year and a half and about a million and a half dollars doing this coverage for National Geographic. It became a cover wow. a cover story of January 1993. But prior to that, I thought we have all these. Wait, was that of dinosaurs? It was on dinosaurs, and um, this is for the magazine. And I said, well, listen, we, we have all this great content. I've been doing a journal. How about if we do a book? And they spent $50,000 on a market survey that said that dinosaurs are declining in popularity. Now, remember, that <laughs> this is, this is pre-Jurassic Park. So now I'm, I'm working for another magazine um, just like a couple weeks after that. And I'm going down to South America to photograph somebody in Brazil. And I'm sitting next to a guy uh, who asked me what I do, what I do for a living, and I, I said, "Well, I work for National Geographic. Uh, you know, that's, what, that's my day job." And he says, "Oh, you know, uh, what are you working on?" I said, "Oh, I just finished a story on dinosaurs." He said, "Oh, you know, I work for um, this, this company that's doing a, a film on dinosaurs, and you know, the director's really excited about this project. You know, who's the director? Steven Spielberg." And at this point, nobody else had been allowed, no other still photographers had been allowed behind the scenes to film the dinosaurs being made. And so he made arrangements for me to go visit Stan Winston to see some of the early CG footage. Well, because wow. you had National Geographic credibility. Exactly, yeah. So Spielberg really loved National Geographic. And I, I called National Geographic back and I said, forget your market surveys. This movie's going to be huge. 
And they said, no, you know, we, we did our testing. Go, go do a book if you want to. So that, so I owned the project then. And wow. So that, they released it to you thinking dinosaurs, people don't care about dinosaurs. Well, contractually, I own the pictures anyway. You know, they got uh, first rights to publish what the, you know, for the magazine, but then all the, the rights revert back to me. And then I spent about a year, you know, writing the book. And I visited all the, the main publishers, and everybody said, "Oh, great!" But you know, basically the same thing that Geographic said that oh. you listen. So to. you got to visit the Stan Winston, who was the special effects uh, designer and shop that created all the dinosaurs. You got to see that oh, shop yeah. in production. Oh yeah. What What did you see? Oh, well, you know, full scale T Rex being made, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, the little uh, Dromaeosaurs, you know, everything, and you know, and the some of the early CG work. Which was really exciting because it was, you know, this is one of the first CG movies ever right, right. that, you know, to be made, uh, at least at that scale. And um, I just knew it was going to be a game changer. But trying to t convince somebody, a publisher, that, hey, this, the game has just changed. You know, forget everything you learn. People, what I learned about humanity is we're really bad about foreseeing trends. And when you're working for Geographic, you're sometimes in the middle of a trend, and you can kind of see, kind of see the future. Right. Well, anyway, everybody turned it down, and then about, I'd say about a year later, after meeting Stan Winston, the New York Times ran a cover story about, oh, this is going to be game-changing, you know, film. And then I, I got this call from all the publishers that had refused it. Wow, and, just like that. And they said, is it still available? And so we had a bidding war. And so, but how can Spielberg not be a trendsetter? Uh because this is on the back of Jaws and, and Poltergeist. And... But but nobody could imagine that you could bring dinosaurs to life by, with computer because graphics. Because human optimism is biased. Yeah, yeah, I would say so, very very much so. You know, I've been on a, a number of movements, I'll call them, where I, I had one of the first electric cars in Colorado. Uh, and, you know, I was powering it with, this is back, I had a 2002 uh, fully electric Toyota RAV. Wow. And I was I was powering it with 120 solar panels. And I was like, this is going to be the future. Drive this car. It's incredible. It's, again, it's fully electric. This is not a Tesla. It's a fully electric car. And it took, it's taken a full 15 years for the world to catch up what everybody that drew an electric car knew 15 years ago. So Yeah, but, th but there's been a bit of propaganda from the petroleum companies. They don't. They don't want it. True. Yeah. Absolutely. There's. You know. But <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that yeah. later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, Let's I do wanna, dinosaurs. I want right. to do dinosaurs for a little bit here, and then <laughs> you were able to travel the world, photographing paleontologists. These uh, going to all these fossil sites. You made fossil discoveries. You wrote this book. You spent a year of your life writing this book, and we had we just talked to Bob Bakker, who says hello, by the way. And he wrote the and intro. And we interviewed Jack Horner. Oh, and yeah. Jack Horner. I listened to that, Two of yeah. your uh, photographic subjects. And you can actually see a lot of these photographs that uh, Louis took on his website, louisahoyos.com, right? Uh, Sohoyos.com, yeah. Sohoyos. And uh, you had a few adventures in the book, you know, and actually one of the, it kind of starts off in a weird way. You spent some time with a certain very famous dead paleontologist. You met Edward Drinker Cope. How did that come to be? Uh, yeah, he was, he was our, we called him our spiritual guide for, you know, I don't even know, several months. Um, I wanted to illustrate the Great Bone Wars, and I guess everybody on your program knows about the Bone Wars, I would assume. That, we you know, described it in our intro to this episode. Okay, good. Yeah, so Edward Drinker Cope, Athenial Marsh, were, uh, started out being friends. They then became arch enemies when. You know, Cope pointed out rightly that the Elizabeth Lasmosaur, 
you know, yep. head, he put it on the wrong end. He put it on the tail and then they became, you know, mortal enemies. Um, but between them, they described almost half the dinosaurs then on the planet. And um, I wanted to illustrate this, you know, this era of paleontological history. So I, and I started out at the Smithsonian, you know, down in, in D.C., and I asked if I could see any, you know, marsh artifacts. And I, I can't remember the name of the paleontologist, but I remember we went downstairs in the, the great archive of the Smithsonian. They have far more material in the basement than they do on, on right. display. And he says, oh, I want to show you something. We have the, the original marsh drawings. And we went to this room full of wow. file cabinets. And they weren't in the file cabinet. They were too big, but they were on the side of the file cabinet between the wall and the file cabinet. And, and, he, <laughs> and he pulled them out and laid them out. And these were like the original drawings of Apatosaur or the Brontosaur. And I thought, you know, these are hand-drawn. I said, like, why are they just tucked away like that? He said, well, we're going to uh, – I, I knew that they were valuable – so I took him to the head curator and he said, how long, how much is it going to cost to document them or to preserve them? You know, cause they were frayed at the edges and it was like $40,000. And the curator said, well, just, uh, just photograph them and throw them away. We can't afford what? to, yeah, to storms. And so I asked him, I said, well, if they're going to throw them away anyway, they would make a nice background for this picture I wanted to do of, of Martian cope artifacts. And so there's uh, like six archives of paleontological vaults of museums that we kind of raided up the East Coast. And whenever everybody would say, like, you know, I'd say, like, I want to take them out of the museum and, you know, to one place to, to photograph them. And I said, well, you can't do it. They're, you know, really valuable. I said, well, look at the, the Smithsonian. We had the original drawings from the Smithsonian. You know, they lent us. Oh, they lent <laughs> us to it, so why not you? Yeah, so then... We, uh, we were up in Philadelphia, where a lot of Cope's artifacts are from. And I remember that I was talking to Ted Dashler, I think was the name of the paleontologist. Yeah, it was Ted, yeah. yeah. And he told me, well, we have fossils that are still wrapped up by Cope that he discovered out west. They sent back. We haven't unwrapped them yet. We don't know what's in them. It was a newspaper of the time. They had railroad receipts from you know him shipping fossils across. And he kind of mentioned, he says, well, and, and he's on a, on a shelf downstairs. <laughs> and I said, well, just wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean he's on a shelf downstairs? And he told me the story that Cope allegedly wanted to be the type specimen for mankind. And uh, because of... That's a pretty big ego. Uh, yeah, it, uh, possibly, you know, for whatever reason. But then, you know, he had his bones uh, preserved for science, but he had the beginning signs of syphilis. You know, you could see it. Well, there's all sorts of diagnostic ways you could tell it. I couldn't tell it. Um, but some paleontologists told me about there's how ossification, there's lesions yeah. on the bones. Yeah, and Louis, I've been told that he was actually prepared there in the ichthyology lab uh, when he died. His body was uh, prepped out. They filleted him down there. Wow. But his, <laughs> so his body was downstairs and you... It was a skeleton. It, uh, the he, skeletons. Yeah, he was in two boxes. Uh, one of them was in a, a, a pretty large box, was like the jumble of everything below the neck. And then the one had his skull. And in a box that was last used for electrical parts from, I remember it was called Herbach and Radman. And it was, uh, it, there was a little specimen tag on his eyelid by his, I don't know, that, that little bone between the skull and the eye. Occipital. Yeah. And, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a specimen 4989 from the Wistar Institute. 4989. Yeah. Haunts me to this day. Is it written yeah. in that black ink? Uh, I think it's. Or was it a tag? I, I think it was a tag. I remember it was, uh, there's a, there's a photograph in the book. Well, you spent some time with it. So, so yeah, then so was, what happens? Well, so we checked them out just like a library book, you know, and then we're, we're you know, <laughs> the next stop, I remember we were going to the American Museum of Natural History up in New York and the, 
uh, we were meeting with uh, Mark Norell and Michael Novacek, and this is in a little ante room right off the Great Hall as you come in the building. And at this point, we're like, I remember, this is the, the interesting bit. Like after we left uh, Philadelphia, I thought, okay, we're going to New York. We have this van full of artifacts. We have to get this stuff insured. And so I'm going through this stuff and, you know, the drawing, well, he told me $40,000. We'll show that for $40,000. And then I said, uh, then we have this specimen 4989. I'm talking to the lawyers back at National Geographic. And they said, well, what's that? I said, what's well, uh, uh, Professor Edward Drinker Cope? And there was sort of, sort of silence. And I, I said, uh, what, uh, uh, what's he worth? And I said, I, ha I have no idea. And they said, well, we can't insure him unless you put a value on him. And I didn't want to call uh -huh. Ted back. Say, what do you... So we thought, we'll just take him wherever we go. So we'd go to restaurants. And you know, the last thing we'd ask each other was like, do you have Ed? So we had these two boxes of, you know, containing the professor, you know, with us wherever we went. Ed's head. You know, hotel rooms, et cetera. Wow. And so we, anyway, we got to uh, the American Museum of Natural History. And, you know, we have this box, you know, between my assistant and I. And, you know, we want to go to the Gobi Desert. And uh, about halfway through the conversation, they said, well, what's in the box? And I said, well, that's Ed. And so then they were like, Ed who? Ed, Edward Drinker Cope. And I didn't realize at this point, remember, this is, we're really just starting out on this trip. I didn't realize what a celebrity Edward Drinker Cope was. Oh, yeah, he is the man. The whole, they got on the phone, the, like the whole paleontological department of the American Museum of Natural History came down to be filmed with them, to be photographed with them. And, you know, it was like, he became sort of our entree into the world of paleontology. Ed was with us literally wherever we went. And I remember that some of the stuff was actually kind of creepy. Like we got, I was photographing uh, the head paleontologist at Ghost Ranch in New Mexico where Coelophysis was found. And at that point I was by myself, but I had Ed recording equipment because I was recording for the book at this point. I was no longer working for National Geographic, but I had this idea. I wanted to photograph Ed at some sites where he had, you know, where he worked. And um, we're at the end That's of That's very macabre. Uh, it was, but it was, we could talk about that later, but I want to set up the story. So we, yeah. we, we, so Ghost Ranch is like several thousand acres is where George O'Keefe used to work. Uh, and now it's a, a ranch where the Coelophysis site, they have a bones that they're preparing. Yeah, it's yeah. gorgeous. So I want to photograph uh, this woman and do her interview, the, the, the paleontologist up at Lynn Gillette. uh, up at the Coelophysis site and which I'd never been to before. So we're at the end of the, this road and uh, she goes, oh, you should take anything valuable out of the car. And I, at that point, I was going to leave edit, you know, the box. At this point, it was just the skull. We returned the rest of his bones. And uh, I had, you know, the heavy recording gear, my photography equipment. I said, do you mind taking the box? And I didn't tell her what was in it. And but I, we're, we're walking up to the site and she has Ed <laughs> underneath her arm. And um she, I said, uh, Lynn, I don't, I, I don't know much about what you do. Can you tell me about what you know your your work? And she says, Well, I'm not really a a, a paleontologist. You know, I just start out that way. Most of my work has been done with with uh, modern bones, like with syphilis. And I said, Oh my God! And so we get up to the top, and I said, Well, t tell me who discovered this site? And I think his name was Baldwin, who was a mm -hmm. a paleontologist that worked with Cope. And I said, Baldwin. So this was a Cope site. And she goes, oh, yeah. 
And now she's carrying his head up to the, the site. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and we, we, we get up there, and she, oh. she, she asked me basically what's in the box. And I said, well, that's Edward Drinker Cope. Maybe you could confirm with me whether you think he has syphilis or not. And she, she pointed out that the, the thin bones right behind the eye, they're really like, a, like little, I don't know. Paper how to, thin. Yeah, paper thin. Those were all. Where the optic nerve goes in. Exactly. And those were all eroded. And that, I guess that's, what, that's one, one of the diagnostic signs of syphilis. So wow. then, she, then she, then I had to tell her the whole story about how I came. Well, to you know, him. you also had a moment too, where you held Cope's skull <laughs> in front of Marsh's portrait in the film. Tell that story. <laughs> yeah, we were uh, got at Yale University, and that's where Athenio Marsh's. You know, that's where he ended up. And I remember we were photographing a picture showing that you know Cope and Marsh are back together again, and so. <laughs> I'm holding it up, and this never had happened before. But the the lights had started on fire when I Whoa. when I when we were filming, and it could have been from the heat, you know, who knows what. But I never had that happen before, and I've been a photographer at that point for you know a good 20 years. Uh, but they started on fire right there when we were doing that picture. <laughs> so. I do believe in spooks? I do believe in spooks. <laughs> I emailed you the story. I had my own uh, experience with specimen four nine eight nine because I had. I had an exhibit at the Academy of Natural Sciences in uh, 1998, and I wanted to tell the story of the skull because you had been taking it around, and basically they were not happy that you had done that to bring this awkward moment up, and they said, you can't tell that story. Please don't. We just want to put that behind us, but now we're talking about it here on the, on the, on the <laughs> what podcast. What happened? What do you mean? Why were they angry? Yeah. Well... There's, you know, it's actually somebody's grandfather, you know, uh, it's it's a human. But, you know, I, I really think that, Ed, that Mr. Cope really did want to be the type specimen because Linnaeus had never done it. And, and Bob Bakker actually did the paperwork to submit his skull as the lectotype, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so I'll, I don't know where the paperwork ever well, went, wait, but, any, but nobody ever Did you repatriate the remains, Louis? Yes, he's back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What really kicked this whole thing off well, is Bob Bakker. You know, I, this is, I used to live in Boulder, Colorado for, you know, a couple decades. But before that, I wasn't living there. I went to, to meet Bob in, in Boulder. And um, he's one of the first people I, I talked to, the first paleontologist who, you know, the, like the, uh, it's hard to say, like the first major one, you know, mm -hmm. who at, the, at this point he's pretty well known. And I said, Bob, what kind of pictures should I take for the story? And he said, he said they should be counterintuitive. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, other than what people think, you know, that not all dinosaurs were big. Some of them were so small that they were mouse-sized. And I'd never heard mm. of a mouse-sized dinosaur before. And he, I said, that's incredible. Who has it? And he pulls out this little vial of bones out of his pocket, you know, his jacket, his little <laughs> flat jacket, little black bones, a little tiny jaw, a little tiny femur. And I said, that's incredible. What do you call it? And he said, drinker. And I said, why? He said, well, after every drinker cope. And I said, do you want to meet him? Oh! <laughs> and, and, he, and he was sitting right between us on the seat. So and that's, Oh, wow. Uh, and then, th then he told me that whole story, too, about, you know, Cope wanted to be the type specimen. And then, he, then I, you know, back, I don't know, probably two years later, I'm about ready to finish the book. And he says, you know, I did some research. There's still not a type specimen for mankind. But, you know, if, uh, it's you don't. For a living extant species, you you can't have a type specimen. It's not necessary, but you can do a lectotype. And so right. he he wrote a oh, he wrote a paper he wrote a paper, uh, and I can't remember where it was published, 
but he but he basically he made you know oh. coptotype specimen or lectotype specimen for mankind. So I haven't heard of these two to term. There's a holotype and a lectotype. Correct. For a living species, you don't need a type specimen because they're living, right? Right. I mean, right. So yeah. Anyways, well. That's a fascinating story, and, and, and like I said, when I had my exhibit, they didn't want me to tell the story, but they said I could take all these dog skulls and put them in front of his bust, which I did, and I had a piece of artwork behind that, and we just randomly put these dog skulls in there. Why the dog Cope, skulls? Well, Cope, uh, as, as Louis was saying, at the Academy, they have all kinds of stuff that he collected in their collection, and one of the things was he, being into evolution and wanting to see, you know, uh, uh, how animals evolved and change as they evolve. Every time a dog would die in Philadelphia, this is the story I was told, old Professor Cope would go get it and get the skull, render it down and put it in the collection. So they actually have hundreds of dog skulls oh. in their collection that Cope had gotten. And he put specimen numbers on them all and he put them away. And so I randomly put all these things in front. They, I couldn't tell the story of Louis and the skull and the type specimen. So I randomly put all those things in the in front of the, this bust of Cope and with my artwork behind it. And the exhibit opened and it was great. And then about a week after the exhibit, I was touring some students from Colgate University through the exhibit, told them the story because I could tell them the story. There was no label that said this. And one of the students said, did you notice the number on the skull that is directly in front of Professor Cope's bust right there? And I'd never looked at it. And I leaned over and it was the largest, it was a Great Dane, the largest skull right in front. Everything else was gathered around it and it said very clearly 4989. And I just, I kind of flipped out. There's so and much I, I think, irony. You know, How we, are men of, is... we are men of science, are we not? Or we are people <laughs> of science. And, but these things make you go. Hmm. So much irony around Edward Drinker Cope and his skull. Well, there a lot of people to this day, are you uh, Cope or Marsh? Or, you know, like uh, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, you know? Uh... <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, anyways. I, I want to find out about this um, dinosaur track that vanished the next day. Uh, in uh... Yeah. Louis, as you uh, oh. worked at the book, you had some pretty harrowing experiences. And I remember one of the highlights in the book as I was reading it, you were photographing Phil Curry and something happened in Canada. Yeah, it was a pretty remote location along a river by a coal mine. And the coal mine faced east. And it was like, so dinosaurs are walking across, imagine like a mud flat, and they get preserved in the mud. But then uh, through tectonic movements, it gets faulted so it's almost vertical. Mm -hmm. And it's in a coal mine. So they were stripping the coal away. And underneath the last layer of the rock are these dinosaur footprints. And they were beautiful. They were big. You could see different sizes, different species going across. And uh, I wanted to photograph Phil Curry coming down with a rope, measuring them. Oh, wow. And then, um, but I'm pretty persnickety for, you know, the quality of the light. So uh, he, he got up there and said, you know, by the time when he finally got set, the light had gone over the edge of the, the, the hill and they were no longer raking across. And because um, an oblique angle gives you beautiful shadows. Exactly. You could sort of see the definition of them. And I thought, well, you know, these things have been up there for, you know, 100 million years. What's another day? And we were going to <laughs> we were going to photograph dinosaur tracks somewhere else. And this is with a helicopter. And uh, he came back and said they were they fell down. The, the ones up there Then we went, went then we thought, well, OK, well, at least we have these other ones. And uh we went back, the, you know, 
to the same site and they were gone. The, the, the cliff had collapsed literally like overnight. I mean, wow. it was just, you know, and I realized he, you know, could have been up there. And I guess, you know, once the coal seam is taken away, it makes the cliff that's right behind it unstable. And it, you can see in the photographs that we, the before pictures in the book where it's sort of buckling out. And we, you know, oh, you, wow. I thought that was just a natural wow. feature. You didn't know that that was actually the cliff separate. And you almost had Phil posing, rappelling down that. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, no, it, uh, it was pretty scary. Wow. Well, I got to say that all of your photographs, uh, Dave, uh, well, uh, anyone should go look at uh, your website and just your, your uh, incredible career. You, you're not just taking snapshots on a lot of these, these portraits that you take, you carefully orchestrate, you bring in lights, you had an assistant that worked with you, and you were spending those National Geographic dollars doing some pretty incredible sets. And uh, just got to say, know, you're but, an extraordinary visual artist, Louis. Oh, but thank you. Being an entertainer, I've had my share of photo shoots, and I've had very poor photographers, and I've had some amazing ones. It's contrast that seems to make the human portrait stand out. What I want to know is, I watched Racing Extinction with my son, and uh, it changed our lives. It really did. It changed the way I, I, I view so many things now. But where was it in your life that made you realize that our planet is in danger and you personally want to do something about it? Uh, I can remember the day. It was with Michael Novacek up at his office at the American Museum of Nat Natural History. And anyway, he is? The head provost of the, or at least the, the, he was the provost of the American Museum of Natural History, the, one of the head paleontologists up, up He's there. He's a paleontologist, so... Yeah. And, he, you know, we were interviewing him and he said that, well, you know, I was talking about mass extinction to, and he said, well, you know, we're going through one right now. And I, this to me just put a shock through me. I thought, well, what do you mean we're going through one right now? This is probably about, boy, I don't know, circa 1991, something like that, maybe. And he says, oh, yeah, we're on track to have one every bit as big as the one that saw the collapse of the, the, the big dinosaurs. 66 million years ago. And I said, well, what are the causes of it? And he mentioned, you know, habitat destruction, mainly through agriculture, pollution, overconsumption. Those were the, the, the main drivers, but he said by far away, the biggest one is agriculture. And then that, that, that shock sort of, you know, it registered to me, but I thought, well, what, you know, I said, why, why, why are you doing something about that? What, you know, I was thinking as a leader of a, one of the major institutions in, in America, he could, you know, use that as a megaphone. And he said, well, we try to do uh, exhibits on extinction and they're not that well attended. Um, you know, they have to, at the end of the day, even though it's a, maybe a nonprofit organization, they have to make things entertaining. And then, you know, I sort of pocketed that information. Then I guess you'd probably look about 10 years later, you know, I'd been to the Gobi with him. I had, you know, found, you know, seen what extinction looks like. And I started realizing that we have to do something about this. It's not like a, it scared me that nobody was thinking about this. I remember I was reading a Financial Times article and I was over in, in Europe uh, working on something and it said, you know, uh, it's like a page six article in the Financial Times that said, you know, uh, humanity, may, you know, may be causing a mass extinction. Half the, you know, and then the reading buried on page six. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, like we we have no 
financial times. We have no economy without a functioning ecosystem. And I thought, you know, this is the, you know, one of the biggest, the biggest story in the world and nobody's doing anything about it. So I thought, let's make a film about it and not just make a film about it. Let's do like a campaign. And one of the things that we did, I'm very proud of our whole team was we, we realized we wanted a, you know, documentaries only get you so far. You know, it, there's mm-hmm. some really good stats that show that to change the world, to change, you know, the way people think, you only need 10% of the population, 100% committed. That's the recipe for social change. You know, it's not 6%, not 7%. Using the, the, the scientific modeling that they did with um, the civil rights movement, the suffragette movement, Arab Spring. Of course, there's always organizations like, you know, the fossil fuel organization with electric cars trying to put cold water on this issue to try to, you know, cool down the steam. But I realize that if we're going to get the world to care about this, we have to have more than 10% of them, at least 10% of them ignited. So one thing that we did, you know, part of the end of the film for Racing Extinction and part of the, the impact campaign is we lit up big, huge buildings with endangered species. We lit up the Empire State Building with uh, endangered species, and we had, I think, 939 million media views within just like five days. And we thought, man, we can't. So you did. You you hit 10%. We hit 10%. We thought we couldn't do any better than that. And then the Pope called. The Pope Pope wanted us to light up the Vatican uh, during COP21, you know, the last uh, where countries get together and decide on the climate agreement since this was right before Paris. And so we did that for the Pope and we had 4.4 billion media views. Wow. Louis, how did you go about uh, engineering those massive, uh, what's the tech story behind? I can't just get my little computer projector and project it onto the side of a, a well, building. In, you it, had to really. Ray, it's, in, it's in racing extinction, the entire process. I want to know a little bit more about that. Yeah, so we I worked with this projection company. Um, it's called Obscura Digital. It became part of the Madison Square Garden Group. But it was, a, it was basically a couple of great artists that had been using uh, had scaled up their business like from rock shows to do these big, huge events. So do like the, uh. the halftime shows for the Grateful Dead. And I thought, let's let's use these. You, you basically tile like IMAX projectors, like 20 to 30,000 lumen projectors together. So for the Empire State Building, we used 50, uh, I think it was 20,000 lumen projectors to, so a million wow. lumens to make a single image. So that they're you're basically adding up. Oh, that's brilliant! That's brilliant. so. It's all the it's all the projectors sort of mounted together, doing a little section of the. Well, image. I would guess they were on different rooftops, right? No, the same rooftop. Um, oh. Yeah. So so imagine what they call three channels, like a top, middle, and, and bottom. And so there'll be basically sixteen, seventeen projectors on the bottom one. Same for the next one. Same for the next one. And they're, they're, we we align them with telescopes. So that the pixels line up, and it takes a so couple beforehand. It takes you're several days. It in. Yeah, it oh, takes a couple days to do it. Um, and we're we're actually we're doing another one right now that's going to be even bigger. It's on the United Nations. Um, you know, we we basically this will be relevant to your, you know, your your listeners that, you know, so obviously extinction problem isn't solved, and we still want to keep on hammering this point home. So. The United Nations is allowing us to project on the United Nations on, on the east side of the building. This is the side that fits, sits proud on the East River uh, before the next cop uh, in Glasgow. So this is we'll be doing it October 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and it'll all be what about extinction. Big, wow. 
sorry, what was the big curved wall at the United Nations that you that ended racing extinction in that film? That's the General Assembly building. The problem with that, oh, right. that's the problem with that is that, you know, it looks like it's a great view, but only the cameras can see it because we're behind right. the gates. There's hedging. And the this we did this the day before the big climate march in New York City, by depending on who you listen to, about half a million climate marchers were there. And the cops said, well, they'll shut us down if you get if it gets to. They didn't want people running the gates, kind of like what they did at the Capitol last week. They, they had this impression like you get 600,000 maniacs. Of course, People with climate aren't, you know, they're they're not the types that are going to pillage or want to preserve things. Yeah. Right. So, um, so the, the 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 police, the New York police said if we had over two thousand people, they'd shut us down. So we had to limit the crowds. We couldn't advertise it. And and with the East River now, we can have, even if COVID's still a problem in October, we can have several hundred thousand people doing social distancing outdoors. So that's a, you know, we're still working on these issues. It's still a, a major problem. You know, listen, I love dinosaurs. It's, this this world has definitely ignited me to do something with the living world so that we can preserve it for, for future generations. But it was really the paleontologists like, you know, Novacek, Bach or Horner, all the, you know, the great, you know, we had we basically interviewed 50 of the world's top paleontologists for that book I did, Hunting Dinosaurs. Yeah. And but they really were inspirational to me to say, OK, that's the past. What can we do to, to save the, the, the present? Because those animals are every bit as interesting as the old dead things. And that's how, you know, that's how we're all here. And for people that, you know, might not know, we're, you know, if you look at, listen to the work of like E.O. Wilson, who's one of the top biologists in the world, you know, popularized the idea of biodiversity. He says we're on track to lose about half the species on the planet by the end of the century. You know, that's, that's a mass extinction. Well, I, I have some numbers here if you want to hear them. I read The Conversation, which is out of Flinders University. Uh, a friend, John Long, who's a paleontologist, has had some uh, input into this. Uh, it says, numbers don't lie. Our research reviewed the current state of global environment. Having a vegetation biomass since the agricultural revolution 11,000 years ago, humans have altered two-thirds of the Earth's land surface. That incredible graphic that you put in Racing Extinction of the methane from all the, the cows cattle, on the planet, yeah. the cattle, is, is staggering. 1,300 documented species extinctions over the past 500 years, many more unrecorded. Uh, one million plant and animal species globally are threatened with extinction. We are in a perilous place. Yeah, and now the, the the question becomes, okay, what do you do with that, this knowledge? You know, so to, to me, it's no longer about awareness; it's about action. How do you take action? When people say, you know, how, what can I do? I say, change what's on your plate. You know, when you look at animal agriculture, now this might be an unpopular subject for some of your viewers, but, you know, if you look at your plate, it's a, animal agriculture is responsible for, for the, it's the largest cause of freshwater pollution, one of the largest causes of greenhouse gases. Um, one of the, the biggest health problems that we have are people eating, you know, too many animal products. So if, if you look at everything, but if, if you want to change the world, change what's on your plate, you know, gravitate to more of a whole foods plant-based diet. It's, it's really simple, and it's, it's better for you, it's better for the planet. I spent uh, a couple years doing a, a film with, with the Camerons, so James Cameron, on, on you know, a plant-based diet. The Game Changers, that yeah, film, right? Yeah, it's on, it's on Netflix right now. You know, so we attacked this problem because, you know, it was basically an offshoot of, of racing extinction. When people said, what can I do? And we say plant-based diet. They said, well, where do you get your protein? It's like, so we use some of the, you know, the strongest 
you know, healthiest people on the planet, gold medal winners for the for the Olympics, uh, you know, one of the world's strongest guys, one of the world's most accomplished ultra runners. You know, you can get everything you need and more with a, with a plant, whole foods plant based diet. Here's here's the cool thing, you know, there's a friend of mine, Dan Butner, who was a National Geographic fellow. He popularized the idea of blue zones, places where people live the longest. Uh, without chronic disease in these in these blue zones, 95% of their calories come from a whole food, plant-based diet. Oh, really? Italy is is one of the places. Yes, Sardinia. Yeah, they have yep. they have the the biggest collection of males. Like you know, when they, when they were started to go through the census reports and you know try to locate these people, they thought it must be a statistical problem. Like there's there, there was more centurions in this little village in the, the, you know, in Sardinia than any other place in the world. Really? The concentration, concentration was like 20-fold more than what you would expect. You know, they, they had scientists from all different studies look at what they're eating, what they're doing their, for exercise. And one thing that was common in the five, there's five known blue zones. There's Sardinia, uh, Loma Linda, Icaria, Greece. It's called the island where people forget to die. Uh, Okinawa. I thought it was olive oil. Was that the common? No, no. It's really just a whole foods plant-based. Well, he identifies nine pillars, but food is one of the primary ones. It's basically food, exercise, and community. Those are the three big ones and stress reduction. And if you have, if you're working, if you're, you're putting the right fuel in the tank, if you're sleeping right, if you have a good community, if you have a life purpose, if you feel inspired by what you do, it helps you stay alive. And so, and in these five zones, that's what they have in common. But wow. you know, did not know that. But you know, being you know in my 60s now myself, I want to know how long you know how can I live the longest? I love doing what I'm doing. I'm so inspired. I love waking up every day, and I want to keep on doing this for as long as I can possibly do it. I don't have it. I don't want to retire. You know, I, I enjoy this. So. I want to put the right fuel in the tank. I want to live the, the life that's going to help me live the longest so I can inspire the next generation to go on and, and carry on. Because it's a, when you start to realize at my age is that we're, we're basically leapfrogging, right? We're, we're helping one community of a generation to the next to help inspire the next one to preserve what we have on the planet. The idea that we could be losing this stuff so that the only thing, the way that you find some of these animals is by their bones you know, you guys have been out in the field. You look at a at an animal, and you don't know that much about what you know how how they lived. You can learn quite a bit. I remember I was up in Montana with Jack Horner, and I had found this big, huge femur, and there was no other bones around. And this, uh, he's with a bunch of school children, and and this some little girl says, "Well, we don't know anything about it." And he says, "Well, that's not true." You know, then he, he starts going through like, well, could you tell how big it was? Is it bigger than your femur? Yes. You know, and then he goes through it all that we know it was big. We know it was probably a plant eater. We knew that, you know, you know, so he diagnostically could go through it, but you don't know exactly how it lived. You know what I mean? And we know right. you can go outside right now and like I'm in, in Northern California. It, I, 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 I submit to you that everything out here is a miracle. You know, the, the life, the plants, the bugs. If you discovered any one of these on Mars, it would be like, oh, this is amazing. It's incredible. We're surrounded Absolutely. by life that's incredible every day. We sort of ignore it. And Take but, it for granted. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, I think my mission with the days I have left is to, is to give people that sense of wonder, to inspire them that, okay, things look pretty bleak, but we can always think our way out of it. We can act our way out of it. We can, we can do things to hopefully mitigate 
you know, what, what could be the worst problem I could possibly think of in the world, a mass extinction event. Well, because of racing extinction, I have two Beyond Burgers in the fridge. I cook it for me and my son tonight. Plant-based burgers. Right. I am seriously contemplating. I, I love my cheeseburgers, Louis. I love them. You can still have them. There's uh, okay, the, the, okay, I'll get the plant ones. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's some great you know cheese that's just made right 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 near me here. Uh, uh, Miyoko cheese. You can it melts. But how it do tastes, you change? But, but how do we change the Western selfish? The, the the Western world is selfish, and they want their steaks, and they don't want to give up what they have. How how do you? Well, you you said it. You just said it. There's there's a lot of plant based. You know, listen, uh, Pat Brown from Impossible. He's a I can't call him a friend. He's a colleague. Impossible. Uh, Impossible Burger. He, Sorry, he, those that's what's in my fridge. I've got two Impossible Burgers. Okay, yeah, and then his competitor is is, uh, is Beyond, Beyond Beyond Burger, and that's Ethan Brown. They're not related. Um, you know, Pat says, you know, their burger, the, the Impossible Burger, is getting better every day, improving the nutritional profile. They're improving the taste. He said the cow is not going to get any better, and they're, they're, they can already make it indistinguishable with the top chefs in the world between an Impossible Burger and a cow. So, and he can make it cheaper. He can make it healthier. He can make it, you know, better um, for the planet. You know, the, the mouth feel, texture. They, they can they can improve on that, and the cow's not going to get any better. Um, wow. And then there's a, another friend of mine, uh, Josh Tetrick, who has a company called Just. Just last month, they uh, they started cellular meat out of uh, in Singapore. It's the first country in the world to um, to print meet, to, print meat. Exactly. So yeah, grow it. Yeah. Huh. And so they're selling it at restaurants, and it's expensive now. But the first prototypes are always expensive. But you know, it's like comparable to what you pay at like a you know three star restaurant, you know, for for chicken. But, you know, that'll come down. Impossible burgers were expensive at first, and it was only, you know, really being uh, delivered to the top restaurants in America. Well, let me ask you this, Louis. With uh, Racing Extinction, you were, uh, you were talking about changing 10% of the population's attitude about something, but you, and you're striving for that, and I think it's such a wonderful thing you're doing. But with The Cove in 2009, with that film, you actually affected some change directly did you not and, and can you tell us sure what the cove is all about yeah, you won well, an academy award for that <laughs> incredible documentary yeah the cove uh, it, was, it was interesting too because uh, i'll tell a little bit of a story there's a the guy that um my, my best friend uh, actually paid for that movie jim clark he's the guy that started silicon graphics webmd and netscape hmm. i met him when I was, I was photographing for the cover of fortune we found out that he was a diver i'm a diver we love to dive and you know, so we go around the world taking pictures underwater. He basically, he basically said, Louis, would you teach me how to be a good photographer? And I said, Jim, I'll teach you how to be a great one if you teach me how to be a billionaire. <laughs> so <laughs> so we, we, we literally went around the world for about 10 years and, you know, time off when, you know, we would go and take pictures mostly underwater because we just loved. And to me, it's like an alien universe. It's almost like going through the deserts and finding dinosaurs to see these things that look like they're out of an alien universe, but they're living with I am with there us. with you, man, yeah. Yeah, that no, was pretty pretty spectacular. So anyway, um, I'm on a boat that he had built. It was the world's largest private sailboat at this point. And you photographed it. It's on your website. Yeah, yeah. It's called Athena. And um, my son is playing on a beach down in the Caribbean. This is a summer vacation that we had. Uh, 
I can't remember what year it was, but it was right before I had started OPS, the Oceanic Preservation Society. My son's playing on a beach with another kid, happens to be Steven Spielberg's kid. And mm-hmm. Steven comes over onto the boat to meet, you know, the father of his son's new friend and Jim Clark, who he did Jurassic Park with. Jurassic Park was was made all with Silicon Graphics computers, Jim's computers, my, oh, wow. my buddy's computer. And, and Jim has agreed at this point to, to finance this nonprofit organization. I didn't become a billionaire, so he, he got me into this nonprofit, <laughs> which, by the way, makes me feel like the richest pay- person in the world. But now, but, but I'd never made a film before in my entire life, right? Now I'm, you know, hired to make films, in, and I feel like a, a fraud because I never made one before. So I get Spielberg alone for a couple seconds on the boat. I said, Mr. Spielberg, do you have any advice for a first-time filmmaker? <laughs> and he says, yes, never make a film involving boats or animals. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess from the experience he had making Jaws. Uh, that was a nightmare. Ca- yeah. So anyway, um, the first film we do is The Cove, which involves a lot of boats, a lot of animals, and it became the most award-winning documentary in history. It, you know, swept... Uh, you know, pretty much most of the, it was the first film in history to sweep all the film guilds, you know, Director's Guild, Productors Guild, editing and um, and producing. But the most important thing about that film, we never did that film to, to win awards. I didn't know there were so many awards. I really did But didn't. that film is visceral. It's a powerful film. You're not going to, if you see the, if you see it, you're not going to unsee it. But here's the interesting thing. When we started that film, they were killing about, in Japan, so the film, for people who don't know, is about dolphin hunting in Japan. And at the time, they were killing about 23,000 dolphins and porpoises every year for oh human, cons- human consumption. They were eating them. Every year. Yeah, every year. Now, I think the last year that I remember that they, because of the, all the activism around that film, it's down about to 7% of what it was. So we, because of that film and the activism, it's down 93% And because of the film. And I realized that it was really from the making of that film that I thought, okay, let's ta- you know, let's tackle something really big. Let's tackle mass extinction. That what we went on to do, racing extinction, and then what? What can you do? That's the game changers. Now, now I've got about uh, several big projects that I'm working on um, that are all. Hopefully, we're going to be able to use bits of all of them to do projections on the on the United Nations in October of this next year. Any hints on what those things might be, Louie? Sure. I'm doing another uh, series on food. It's called Food 2.0. I'm doing one on the Loser ecosystem. It's called The Last Place on Earth because it's the last place on Earth where elephants, orangutans, tigers, and they say elephants are in the, in the, um, in the wild together. Uh, mm-hmm. Doing a film about um, women winning uh, pay parity for the sport of big wave surfing. This is done at Mavericks last weekend, uh, wow. filming one of the biggest uh, um, surfs that they had in the last ten years. Um, boy, yeah, did, massive surf last week. Yeah, that was incredible. And I'm doing a film right now with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, and you know, how do you find joy in a world of sorrow? It's a beautiful film. It's a, it's wow. it, it'll be. We'll be so in with... other words, people we've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Obscure well, figures. Yeah, no. Are you directing these, Louie? Are these uh, your films or are you working with a team? or what? We're, we're Always I work with teams. We're a small organization. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm directing four of them. 
and the, the other ones I'm executive producing, meaning I'm, you know, giving notes, finding the teams to, to, wow. to, to do Well, cool. what's beautiful about the Cove and Racing Extinction, it's eco-terrorism meets James Bond. <laughs> so, no, really, that has a universal appeal. I was very impressed by that. Yeah, I think Rolling Stone said of the Cove is that it's like uh, it's a cross between the Born Identity and Flipper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know that the word eco-terrorism is the uh, right word. Yeah, Isn't right. there a better right. e eco-active? Because, I mean, yeah. terrorism... You were up to something else. You were eco-sleuthing. You were eco-reveal. I don't know. What's the word? Let me refine that. When a boat stops a ship from drilling in the Arctic, the ship that's drilling calls those guys eco-terrorists when they are really, on our point of view, they're eco-activists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It depends definitely on your point of view. And we, I'll cut out my line and we'll say the flipper <laughs> line. That's what I'll do. Louis, I, you were kind of into paleontology. You were into you were a dinosaur nerd as a kid there on in Dubuque, Iowa, and you really returned to it as a as an adult when you were assigned the the work uh, that led to the book Hunting Dinosaurs. But you did actually make a lot of discoveries and things along the way as you were hanging out with these paleontologists. You did a little hunting yourself. You found uh, some dinosaur footprints. You found some dinosaur eggs. And I'm just wondering, in all that, all that time looking back, now that you're in your 60s, along with Dave and I, is there a fossil finding moment that stands out in your memory? Oh, boy. You know, I remember I, it was in the, the Gobi, and... Um... You know, we were we were by the flaming cliffs, and I had a lot of people found dinosaur eggs, right? But, you know, this is it's it's fairly easy to do now that you, the people have a search image. But I remember finding a a, a clutch of of dinosaur eggs, and um, you know that was just uh, you know because then in your head you can go, my God, this this is where like like Jack Horner, this is what do you know about this 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 animal? Well, it. it laid eggs here. This is where its nest was. This is a mother taking care of her babies. This is, you know, it was an oviraptor because we know what, you know, we we now have the remains of oviraptors and those same kind of eggs. You could sort of put this picture in your head and, there it is. you know, that's the exciting bit is when you find a dinosaur, it's a, a window into this world that you can start to piece together. I remember finding a, a tooth of probably an albertosaur up at Dinosaur Provincial Park up in Canada. Uh, where, you know, it was just a perfectly preserved tooth like it fell out yesterday. You know, you could cut, wow. you could cut a piece of paper on the serrations. Didn't you find one, Ray? In, in, uh... I, I found an Alberta, well, it's a, a Nanuxaurus, about the same time period as, as Louis' uh, tooth. Up, I found one in the Colville River up in Alaska, and that was a real uh, life moment for me. But, you know, actually, when I was reading through Hunting Dinosaurs, uh, there was a, a moment in there that uh, kind of terrified me because I could really relate to it. It was uh, when you were rappelling down the cliffside trying to photograph uh, Phil Curry and uh, you kind of froze up and couldn't move and you started digging with the Centrosaurus rib. Right. Can you tell us that tale? Because I, I have a fear every now and then it just locks in and I can't move. And I, you told that story very well. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the, the the problem that I have with you know I I I like heights I just don't like edges. <laughs> edges? What do you mean edges? Well, I mean you know you, go, you get to an edge and you know I'm always thinking. You look about, down. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm pretty I'm fairly fearless when I'm roped in, but mm. um, I mean you know, my father died from a fall. He was a roofer, and so I've I've Ooh. you know that that changed my life quite a bit when he died. 
in my, my whole family's life. And so to me, it's, it was like an instinctual fear about heights. But yet I find myself on edges almost all the time because that's where the, the best pictures are. If you're doing landscapes, right now I'm doing a... The Chrysler building. The Chrysler, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we had, uh, it was a dentist office at that point, I think, when I was up there. We, we put a, a rope out the door and out through the window, and then we, we roped ourselves in so that we couldn't fall out. Um, but yeah, I'm always, I mean, I, I carry a rope and climbing gear in the car, even though I'm terrified. I was just using it last week. I was down in Big Sur, and, you know, because I'm photographing on cliffs. You know, the thing is, if, you, if, you, if you're not at the edge, you know, there's a, a famous photographer, Robert Coppa, a war photographer, mm -hmm. who said that if you're not getting good enough pictures, you're not close enough. And I think that's true of, you know, of usually of landscapes or anything you're doing. You know, you're not getting the intimacy that you need. You're not close enough to the edge. And I like to work on the edges of not just uh, the metaphorical edges, too, of like of what yeah. society feels might be you know, borderline inappropriate, you know, and, and, but that way, that's the way you push society forward. You know, look at the work that we're doing with, you know, I, I think our organization has a small hand in popularizing electric cars and getting off of fossil fuels. You know, we've, we've, you know, literally, you know, lit up the lives of probably of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people now with our work. And so to me, we're, we're doing the work of angels, you know, we're, we're taking, the work that basically re-inspiring people, that childhood delight at discovery, that what you feel when you go out in the field and you look for dinosaurs and saying, look, it's, 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 that could happen in real time right now. It doesn't have to be things that are alive, dead. We can look at things that are alive. And then once you, once you've made that connection and you tell, tell people that we're losing them, then the issue doesn't become, it's amazing. How can we save this? How can we preserve this for future generations? You know, I love that phrase, re-inspiring, you know? It's really, it's cool really true. You know, kids are born explorers. They're born scientists. They're born artists. They're, you know, we true we, that. Yeah. we educate that out of them. Or we, you know, we, we almost do whatever we can to take the soul out of a child. Serendipitously, I got an email this morning and I thought, oh my God, of all the people on the planet to help me with this, it's you, Louis. I've been sponsoring youths in the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific to get their dive certs. And through their outreach program, this last year, over 100 youth have been trained and they've become certified open water divers, which is a great alternative to chewing beetle nuts. So I've just sent an email out last week saying I want to sponsor more kids. The problem is that with no tourists until the pandemic is over, there's all these kids with dive certs and nowhere to use them. The organizers have reached out to me and other sponsors to keep these kids diving now to keep their currency up. Now, I'm suggesting sponsoring day wages for plastic cleanup around the reefs, uh, around their local neighboring islands. But as you know, the majority of plastic really accumulates at the tide lines. And in all my years of diving, and I've seen photos of some places where the plastic is prolific in the actual water column, but wherever I've gone, it's always been on the beaches. So, so clean up, that, that's a beachcombing thing. But how can 100 youths with dive certs help their local marine ecology before the tourists return? Oh, yeah. and, and I would give them money to help them do that. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, 
you know, we're actually doing a film about plastic pollution right now. That's uh, one of the calls I have on right, right, at, right, literally right after this is uh, somebody wants to sponsor a film that we're doing on that. When you look at the, the plastic pollution problem, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a whole other episode for a podcast, but um, most of about 80, 85% of the, the plastic comes out of about 10 to 11 rivers and mostly out of Southeast Asia. You know, from India to China to Indonesia has I forget, something like 17,000 islands, 10 recycling plants. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a I tell you what, I'll, just to leave people with this, it's, it's an industry problem. You know, the people say, you know, the industry likes to say, you know, reuse and recycle, but you know, it's made, plastics is made to never be recycled. You know, most of it. It's, it's a design problem. You can make plastics out of anything organic almost. You can make it out of food waste. You can make it out of coconut husks. The, the real problem is, is getting the industry to change the material. And the, the oil industry doesn't want to change that. The, the oil used to be this, this product that was very cheap, expensive to, to get rid of. The byproduct. The byproduct. Yeah. Now the byproduct uh, that they can use to make plastics, and it's for the most part, it's not. You can't recycle it. It's made out of plasticizers that, that gets into your body. The average kid in, in America has about 1.6 million pieces of microplastic that gets put into their body every day. The average adult consumes about a plas a credit card with the plastics every every week. Um, it's a, it's an industry problem. It's not about, it, listen, it's great to pick up the beaches, but until we get the industry to change, it's never going to happen. We're, what we, we're, what we're going to be doing with this film, and I've been researching it for almost a year now, is get the industry to change. That, sure. that we need to work on bioplastics that are truly, um, truly degradable. Degradable. And, and there's, there's plastic shoes now that are made up out of bio. It, the, the shoe is almost worth as much at the end of its life as at the beginning because it's a circular, it's a homogenous shoe. The upper and the lower is made out of a similar material. You can just basically give it right back and they can re chew it right. up and re recycle it into another one. That's what we're looking for is to get rid of using fossil fuel plastic. I'd be curious to hear about fighting anti-science. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's actually one of the initiatives that Jim Clark, that my, my buddy who you know paid for the Cove, uh, he wants to. He you know he's just a Stanford professor and a physics professor. He wants to. He thinks that's the that's the major problem right now in mostly America is that we've somehow made science like an opinion. You know that's that's a detriment to to everything. You know. The reason that America is America is because of science, because of our ability to, you know, look at a problem and, and for a large part of it, think our way out of it, think of new materials, thinking of, of new ways of thinking. And now we've legitimized ignorance, you know, from the highest levels of government on down. And that's a detriment to our future of the planet. We need to be putting a lot more, you know, of our funding into education, basically show people that it's cool to have science. I mean, my my life, I could say, is like my my career. If I have a, a successful one, it, it comes about by really taking the work of scientists and showing them how to communicate that their their ideas to a larger audience. That's basically all I do. Try to make it visual. I mean, you look at you know. But you do though. You do, and your work is is world changing. It really is. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, to give credit where credit's due, I appreciate that. But it's like I, I've got a, a wonderful group of committed people that, you know, from 
the people that fund our work, to the people that, you know, the, the other producers, the editors. We have some of the best editors in the world. One of the, you know, Jim Clark taught me a, a lot about how to be a success. And, you know, here's the, the billion dollar advice I have to anybody out there is have your goal be something that you're passionate about and then surround yourself with not the most intelligent people in the world, but with the best people in the world. And the best people in the world, they will, no matter what the problem is, they'll figure a way around it. You know, that, that they, they don't see the first obstacle. Smart people sometimes are, aren't creative enough to see that there's, you know, failure yeah. is a, you know, massive failures, so strings of failures are the recipe for success. But it's, it's mm. being able to, to, to fail upward so that you can use the, the problems and the the things that don't work as a stepping stone to find out what does work. So, you know, I surround myself with the, you know, some of the best editors and producers in the business, some of the best cinematographers. And what drives them to our little organization is just the passion for the work. We love what we're doing. We, we feel like we're changing the world. And I give people the, the opportunity to do their best work. You know, that's all we do. And I got to say, Louie, when you dive into a topic, uh, Bringing it back to dinosaurs, it's one of the best dinosaur books around. <laughs> I mean, you <laughs> you you took complex science, and that's what you do with your career: the, the, translating science for the masses. And in our own little way, that's what Dave and I are trying to do, striving to do as well. And uh, but you are making major strides, and uh, salutations. I mean, oh, I, thank you, I, thanks I'm for so doing, impressed. Thank, so, you, thank you, thank you for being on our show. Well, thank you, yeah. thanks, thanks for doing what you're doing, because uh, you know when I was going around, you know, 30 years ago now doing this this work, I always thought, man, I, I wish I could take this body of tapes. We didn't have podcasts back then, but I, I still have a collection of those tapes that I have, you know, where I, you know, put a microphone in the face of some paleontologists 30 years ago, and a lot of those people are dead, and I thought. It's, it's great there's a repository for what you're doing yeah. so that people, young people, yeah. can get inspired. It's a wonderful resource that you're doing. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Yeah, you captured a lot of science, uh, scientists actually doing what they do in that book. And I got to say, too, when I was looking through your website, I spotted you wearing one of my T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, the no free lunch. So that's cool. So thank you, Louie. <laughs> Louis, thanks so much for being on the show with Dave and I, and for taking the time to to speak with us. And uh, as we've uh, we've been gushing over uh, your your uh, accomplishments, but but they are truly well deserved and uh, the accolades. And thank you so much. Well, thank you both. And it was a pleasure to be on with you all. All right, thanks. Cheers. Well, we went some places there, man. It's yeah. kind of almost like a two part interview. We were we were well. I love dealing whole... with. Yeah, we're dealing with the distant past and the dinosaur book and then really taking that and applying it to the extinction going on right now. Yeah, but, uh, our future, which uh, doesn't look really good. I think that was one of the most heavy interviews, really. But there was also some great stories in there, you know, yeah. some of those some of those tales. We learned more about Mr. Cope. There's kind of a ghost <laughs> story in there. So wait, where's Cope's skull right now? Well, they checked it back in. It's back in the museum. No, but I mean, but where's that? Where? Uh, it is not at the Academy of Natural Sciences. It's actually a smaller museum. Where is the Academy of Natural Sciences? Is that New York? That is in Philadelphia. Oh, Philly. Okay. Philadelphia. And, uh, so, the, can, so the thing should still be there, right? Well, it's not actually there. It was oh. on loan from another museum the thing. at the time. <laughs> the thing. Well, the skull, the type specimen, and I'm, uh, the lectotype. Right. So apparently he is the lectotype. Right. right. 
Take that, Marsh. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, Cope's skull is reportedly still preserved at the University of Pennsylvania. And I seriously doubt that you'd be able to check him out now and take him on a road trip, so don't even think about it. Yeah, so anyways, uh, pretty profound. And I have got well, you to know say what? that... He's just, he made a difference on the planet, you know? He really has, like I was saying. Leonardo yeah. da Vinci made a difference. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I think what uh, Louis and his crew, those those massive projections, films like uh, The Cove, Racing Extinction, we just talked to a person that is changing the world well, for the better. If you have not seen Racing Extinction, I highly recommend you do because... Uh, and I'm not, this is no joke. It changed my life watching this film. It's gonna. It's changed my eating habits from this day forward. And also, and I'm serious, I want to, once my son leaves the nest, I'm going to be an empty nester. I've been giving away my personal possessions, and I really don't like having stuff anymore. And I'm I'm at the point where my, my life, I need, I want to change. I want to move on and do something different. I don't want to sit and retire in a rocking chair, Ray. And I have a feeling what he is doing is something I'd like to jump on board with in whatever capacity. Well, he is involved with uh, the ocean, oceanic preservation sign up there, the Oceanic Preservation Society. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that actually at the end of each of his films, there is a how you can get involved. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there you we go. will share some of those links and we do what we can. And yep. uh, all right, well, signing off, signing off for Beautiful Catch Can, Alaska, where it's as close as you can get to actually living underwater. <laughs> and I'm signing off from Southern California, where apparently people don't think there's a pandemic. Mm, good luck with that. Bye. See you, Dave. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo